Hello and welcome to Mostly Climate. I'm Dr. Doug McNeil. Earlier this year, a team from the Met Office visited Nepal to meet local partners and to look at the impacts of extreme weather, and in particular, its effects on hydropower generation. So with me today are Dr. Rosie Oakes and Hamish Steptoe from the Met Office. So Rosie, you were on the trip. Can you tell me what the trip was about? Why were you going out to Nepal? This is a project that we've been working on for the past few years. It's called Asia Regional Resilience to a Changing Climate, which was funded by the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And the main reason for going out there is because Nepal generate the majority of their energy from hydropower. I mean, you can imagine Nepal has big mountains and lots of rivers, and they're trying to harness the energy from those rivers to make their electricity. Obviously, hydropower is reliant on rainfall. And so what we wanted to do was talk to people in Nepal to ask them whether they've considered climate change when they're planning their future energy supply, which is coming from hydropower. Okay, so hydropower is really important in Nepal. Clearly, climate change is going to have a really big impact. So can we set the scene? Can we learn a few things about Nepal as a country and about the people of Nepal? Nepal is a landlocked nation. It has around 30 million people and they derive, as, as Rose has already said, something like 90% of their electricity from hydropower. So because most of these hydropower plants sit right on the rivers themselves, they're really susceptible to changes in rainfall. You can imagine that in the dry season, they generate slightly less electricity. And in the wet season, when Rosie and I were out there during the monsoon, they generate slightly more. But that also means that changes in rainfall due to climate change could have a really big impact on the pool's capacity to generate their own electricity. So it's really important that we understand how rainfall could change in future climates. That's a really interesting stat that so much, maybe 90% of the electricity is from hydroelectric power. So that sounds like it's a real opportunity for green energy in the future. That's right. So presently, something like one gigawatt of electricity is generated from their rivers. But studies have shown that they could generate up to 40 to 80 times that, 40 to 80 gigawatts, if they were to make use of all of the available rivers in Nepal. That's amazing. So that's a huge capacity and maybe would become an important export, exporting electricity to India in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think one other thing they're really keen to look into, which came from conversations that Hamish and I had at the workshop that we ran, is that if they export energy to countries and they're able to replace energy that was previously coming from coal or gas or other fossil fuels with energy generated from a green source such as hydropower, they have the potential to get green carbon credits on top of that, which would be another income stream for their country. So I think this is going to require a bit more political negotiation as far as we could tell, but something to look for in the future. Okay, now I'm going to declare an interest in Nepal because I visited back in 2011 and we uh, trekked the Annapurna circuit, my wife and I, uh, for our honeymoon. So I have such warm memories of the country itself. Uh, It's one of the most visually stunning, 
beautiful places I've ever been in my life. Um, Kathmandu is the main centre, isn't it? You spent most of your time in Kathmandu, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we spent most of our time in Kathmandu, uh, workshops and meetings. And then, yeah, we got uh, this amazing opportunity to go out and see some of these hydropower plants. Tell me about the contrast between the city and the rural areas. How are things different in different places in Nepal? It was a really stark contrast, actually. As soon as you start to move out of Kathmandu Valley, you go over these really steep edges of these sort of mountains that surround the Kathmandu city, and suddenly you find yourself back on these um, kind of one-lane highways, one, one lane in either direction. It really brings home, actually, how susceptible some of the Nepal infrastructure is to these extreme weather events. We're travelling on a major highway and yet the risk of landslides to these roads is is huge. Even a small landslide would have taken out a major highway between these two cities. One day when we were coming back actually it did start to rain pretty heavily and you can just see the water pouring off the side of the mountain and it's like a deep red brown colour so it's packed with sediment from these young rocks that's been uplifted so there's a lot of sediment moving around and there's almost like little mini rivers that form down the side of the road and exactly like Hamish said you suddenly think even if there isn't a landslide the potholes that would develop because of one rainstorm would then take a lot of work to repair and there were big trucks coming through there I think in some places it's a link to India as well so they're importing things along those roads um, and then off to the sides, it's just farmland. And we saw maize growing and there were rice paddies. It's amazing how they've tried to adapt to uncertainty already. So if there's a rice paddy, but there's a steep slope at the side, they'll have maize plants on it. Not a maize field like you'd see in the UK or like the gigantic ones in America, but just maybe 10 maize plants on a slope because they're utilizing that space. And then outside their house, maybe they've got some beans growing. They're already thinking, how can we get lots of different things growing just in case one goes wrong? I know that can be a a slightly hair-raising trip along that highway, Rosie. So where were you headed? Where were you going? We were headed out into the rural areas to look at hydropower plants. You know, Hamish and I have spent the last few years studying how the hydropower sector in Nepal might be impacted by climate change. And specifically, we focused on looking at how extreme rainfall, both now and in the future, may impact hydropower generation. But neither of us had ever been to a hydropower plant in Nepal. And so it was difficult for us to put our research into context. So what does a hydropower plant in Nepal look like and feel like? What does it sound like? Is this a big place? Is this micro hydropower? What kind of thing are you talking about here? It's a big place, a lot of engineering. What we learned when we were over there is there are some brilliant engineers in Nepal. So we went to two hydropower plants, the middle Mashangdi and the Mashangdi. The first one we went to was actually commissioned on the day I was born. So quite recently then. Quite recently, about 33 years ago. (laughs) And So it's an old, big concrete building when you get there. And it was really hot when we went and humid. So we were finding it quite warm. The way that hydropower works is that you store water upstream and then you release the water and let it run through turbines 
as those turbines turn, then potential energy from storing the water upstream is turned into kinetic energy and then they turn that into electrical energy and that's transferred off around Nepal. What are the climate risks here? We're, we're talking about extreme rainfall, but how does that interact with our hydropower generation site? There's a number of ways that extreme rainfall can impact these hydropower sites. The main one is simply that a lot of water could just overwhelm the hydropower sites and just wash them away. And this has happened a number of times and it, these are hugely costly events and it takes many, many years for them to recover. So this is why we're so concerned about understanding the likelihood or the risk of these extreme events. How often is the Nepal government going to have to pay out to repair these sites in the future compared to the present day? In the UK here, where the majority of our listeners uh, will be, we've got this idea of flooding as vast, almost flat lands, you know, with water uh, as far as the eye can see, but I'm imagining in a steep-sided valley. And I think if you think about uh, pictures that have come through from Pakistan with the floods recently in more steep-sided valleys, the violence of the floodwaters being able to rip away or severely damage what you've already described as a large and clearly strong structure. That's something that we don't really experience here in the UK so often, is it? It, it feels like it's a different order of magnitude of risk. For sure, the topography really has a huge impact on the nature of the hazard. Obviously, at the point that you build a hydropower plant, someone, perhaps an engineer, has to decide how high they think the river levels are going to get in any given period of time. And that could be over 100 years, or maybe they're only thinking in terms of the next 20 years. But at some point, they've got to decide how high they want to build the bridge over the river so that they can start to construct their hydropower plant. Now, when we were there, we could see that even in a fairly normal uh, month, as was going on when we were there, that the level of the river was only about a metre, maybe a metre and a half below this bridge that we were standing on that formed part of the hydropower plant. So it already seems like they're quite susceptible to these risks already. They've only got a metre, a metre and a half cushion before their hydropower plants have potentially been overtopped. And of course, um, if you want to build in more resilience to those hydropower plants, that's going to be costly, right? So it's a balance between building in more resilience to climate change and having more hydropower plants. There's, there's a cost issue here. Those were exactly the conversations that we had at the workshop that we held back in Kathmandu. So the workshop was attended by hydropower owners from the private sector, government policymakers, and also other NGOs. And they were saying that to us. They were like, we have to run a profitable business, but we don't want the hydropower plant to collapse. And we don't want to put people's lives at risk, but we need to keep generating electricity. How high shall we build the wall? And the way that we look at climate information, we cannot give engineers a specific number because there's some uncertainty around what will happen in the future. And this really comes from two main areas. Firstly, the uncertainty about what's happened in the past. So observation stations, particularly at high elevations in Nepal are quite sparse. And that was a lot of the work that Hamish was doing before we went out there was to try and determine what's the risk at the moment just at the moment in the current climate, what's the risk of extreme rainfall? And then the second part to it is, we don't know exactly what's gonna happen in the future. 
And part of this is we don't know what we as humans are going to do. Hopefully we'll reduce how much carbon dioxide we emit, but we don't know by how much. And also there's uncertainty in the climate models. Nepal, as you know from walking, Doug, has really steep mountains and really low valleys. And so in the space of one box on a climate grid, which can be 50 kilometers by 50 kilometers, you're getting huge changes in elevation and that makes it really difficult to model. And so we bring in more uncertainty. There's always a trade-off. The engineers want to keep their costs as low as possible. They want to build resilience, but they have to make sure that they make a profit and um, that they can actually do it. So we could, we could build the Thames barrier 100 meters high, but that would be pointless. You want to find out exactly where to build that. It's really challenging. The advantage of looking at the present day climate is that we do have higher resolution data sets. We have data sets that are based on rain gauges and we have data sets that are based on satellite observations. And then there's more that are based on a mixture of the two and sometimes we combine them with our numerical models as well. But that brings about its own set of challenges. How do the hydropower stakeholders in Nepal know which of these data sets best represents they're part of Nepal. How do they know which one to use? So some of what I have been doing in this project is to develop a method to extract as much information out of all of these different data sets as we can, blend it or smush it, uh, as Rosie often used to say, into a data set that gives us a better idea of these extreme events. I know that those data sets are more useful the longer they are. So the longer a data set is, the more that you see the extreme events happening. But I'm imagining, so Nepal's only really been open since 1950 to external visitors. Uh, were there any observations from before then? And if there weren't, how does that impact your science and what you can tell about the extreme events? That's right, that's another really challenging aspect of this. In order to estimate these extreme events that maybe only happen once in 50 years, once in 100 years, you have to have seen lots of one in 100 year events before you get this picture, this good estimate of what a one in 100 year event actually looks like. So you're right, in Nepal, we don't have this really long continuous record. So we have to make use of other sources of data. And so in this particular project, we actually made use of the Met Office Global Seasonal Forecast Model, Glossy. What this does, it incorporates our best uh, numerical models to give us a much more extended view of the present day climate. And it does this really just by running our model many, many times with different starting conditions. What was that modeling telling you about the risk of extreme rain? The present day risk of extreme rainfall is actually greater than you think. So if you just look at the rain gauge data that you have, that maybe in the pool goes back up to maybe 30 years in some cases in some locations much much shorter maybe only up to five years worth of data what you think is an extreme event in reality isn't really that extreme and that's just because you just haven't observed that many of them so by using the Met Office glossy model and combining that with a number of other observational based data sets what we were able to show is that these extreme events were actually more likely 
that's interesting. So that sounds a bit like us uh, here in the UK in the summer. Suddenly we have a very high temperature, a very hot day or a series of hot days and a heat wave. And it feels like the climate has shifted underneath us. Maybe we haven't seen the full consequences of that yet. And suddenly you get a, a, a run of hot days that you weren't expecting because the climate has shifted, or in this case, because you just haven't got the observations going back far enough. So it sounds like a a recipe for surprise, basically, which would worry me if I was running a hydropower plant. That's right. Of course, what we really want to be able to tell them is how things are going to change in the future. So now we have a better idea of what the present day risk is. We can now extend our analysis to look forwards in time. So we used another set of models, the Cordex dataset in this case, to look forwards in time up to the end of the century. And a colleague of ours, Dr Katie Richardson, did some really great analysis that showed that for all models that we looked at, there will be an increase to the magnitude of these extreme events. And that's interesting, Amish, because you say all the models that you looked at. Sometimes that's not the case, is it? If you look at different models from different centres or even just different runs of the same climate model, sometimes you can have an increasing risk or increasing rainfall, for example, and decreasing rainfall. But there's uncertainty which sort of bounds zero, if you like. It increases or decreases. But you were saying all the models were predicting an increase in risk here. That's right. So... At the Met Office, we've used the Cordex data set all around the world. So as you say, we're used to this result where actually you get quite a mixed message. But this was a really clear result. All models show that there was going to be an increase in rainfall extremes. And can you say, are we in the place where we can effectively use this information yet in Nepal? Or are we going to have to put work in in order for people to take this information on? So this is something that we talked about when we had in the room engineers, owners of hydropower plant and the government all in one room. And the impression that I got is that they know the climate is changing. They know that it poses a risk to their businesses and to the livelihoods of people downstream of the hydropower plants. But the climate information currently isn't in a format that they can input into their designs. One really great session that we had at the workshop was we asked people to write down what they thought the three most important next steps were to solve this problem. So there was a huge range of things on the list from training, they want to know how to interpret the types of information that Hamish has talked about. They also want to know how to incorporate this into engineering standards and engineering designs, maybe update some of the standards. And they also wanted to know whether there was going to be any reward for them for becoming resilient. So Doug, if you owned a hydropower plant and Hamish, you owned one and Hamish made his climate resilient and you didn't, Doug, should Hamish be getting more money per kilowatt hour generation of electricity because Hamish's supply of electricity is more resilient to future climate change? Currently, that isn't in place, but that's something that the developers said there would almost need to be some kind of financial incentive for them to put this huge investment forward. I think as scientists, it's really important for us to remember that the analysis and the work that we do is really just the start of how this information is going to be used. And we then pass what we learn on to maybe a new set of scientists who might do some hydrological modeling to work out how this extreme rainfall would translate into actually extreme flood 
events. So this is kind of the idea of incorporating the knowledge about the river basins and perhaps the steepness of the river. And then they, in turn, pass that information on to the engineers who will then start to make decisions about how high to build these walls, how large do these dams need to be. And then the final stage is almost passing that information on to perhaps the Nepali government or other government officials who will then decide how much they're going to charge for this electricity. So reflections of the trip, Rosie and Hamish. Hamish, what did you learn from your time in Nepal and your interactions with the people who are really facing up to the climate challenge there? Making decisions about these changes to our climate is really difficult. But one thing that we really learned is that preparation is key. Making these decisions in advance really helps when it comes to being able to deal with future climate impacts. And I don't think these challenges are unique to Nepal. In Nepal, we were talking about hydropower infrastructure. But if we look in the UK, for example, some of our infrastructure was built tens or hundreds of years ago when the climate was not the same as it is today. So I think exactly as Hamish mentioned for Nepal, that early preparation is key. I think similarly in the UK, it's important to design our infrastructure for not the climate that we had 50 years ago, but that the climate that we will have in 50 or 100 years. Great, that's a really good point, I think, to wrap up this discussion. So I'd really like to thank uh, Dr. Rosie Oakes and Hamish Steptoe, who's a senior scientist here at the Met Office. My name's Dr. Doug McNeil. Our producers were Claire Nazir and Graham Madge. Thanks for listening to Mostly Climate. Mostly Climate is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.